right, church, go ahead, open up your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. Now, over the last few weeks, some of you have had to take your temperature recently uh, to see if you've been sick or if someone that you love has been sick. And, uh, and, and why, why do you do that? Like, why do now uh, hospitals or even some businesses or Camp Atterbury or wherever you're going, they're taking your temperature to see uh, they're, they're doing that, right, to take your temperature to see if you have a fever, because a fever is a sign that something might not be quite right inside of you, that your body might be fighting off an infection. It's an external sign of an inner reality. And in a similar way, how you react to things is many times a good indicator of what's going on in your heart. You see, how you react to things is a much better thermometer of the heart than how you merely act. Uh, I mean, we can, we can pull ourselves together on a Sunday morning, right? We can, we can get ourselves all kind of nice and proper, especially when we're around other people, and we can act... We can act like all is well, and some of us are really good at fooling others. Some of us are really good at fooling ourselves uh, as to how we are really doing. But then wait until something doesn't go according to your plans. Wait until someone hurts you or annoys you. Wait until someone slows you down or speeds you up. Wait until you hear something on the news you don't like. And then watch how you react. And that will be a much more accurate temperature reading of your heart than how you act on a day when the sun is shining and the bank account is full and they've just finished the parade in your honor, honoring just how awesome you are. You see, church, many times many of us react in anger. And that anger should be a signal to us that something is not right. Now, sometimes it is righteous anger. Let's just get this out of the way at the start. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Anger is not always a sin, right? Sometimes anger is a signal to us that something is not right in the world, right? I mean, if we see a, a child being abused or neglected, and there's a, there's a rightful righteous anger that rises up in us. Righteous anger is an anger towards evil. However, even if it's righteous anger, we still need to learn from God as to how to react with a righteous anger. For God, even in his righteous anger towards evil, is slow to anger and quick to relent and forgive. Even if it truly is righteous anger, we should not allow that anger to lodge in our hearts and stay there for long periods of time. It should be dealt with. We can't allow ourselves to just stew in this anger. But I think if we're really honest with ourselves, most of the times we are not reacting with righteous anger, (laughs) but instead of sinful anger. And that sinful anger, when lodged long enough in our hearts, can end up getting directed towards God. And so let's start this morning with a a couple of questions. Uh, Number one, are you angry this morning? 
And number two, are you angry with God this morning? Now, there are different levels of anger, and anger can express itself differently in our different personalities. Uh, Maybe you're not feeling violently angry this morning, but maybe you are frustrated this morning. Maybe you are disappointed this morning. Right? Maybe you have a low-grade temp and fever of anger this morning. And if that's you, I believe that the Lord wants to deal with that and free you from that this morning. You see, what we've been learning in the book of Jonah is that God is persistently gracious to both rebels and runners, even runners with a low-grade temp of anger in their hearts. I mean, you, you didn't know it was there. You didn't even, you, every, you were acting like everything was fine, but then God brought some things into your life that you had to react to, and the temperature of your heart has been exposed. This morning, we are starting into chapter 4 of Jonah, and I asked Sarah to read verse 10 of chapter 3 to remind us of what, it, what has just happened Like Jonah has just preached to the Ninevites and a miracle happens. The Ninevites believed God and they repent and they cry out for mercy and grace. And God, get this, God relents from the disaster that he initially said was coming. And so in chapter 4, verse 1, you'd expect to see some rejoicing over one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world. But instead, we see Jonah react with anger. And so as we walk through these four verses today, we're going to see that number one, Jonah is angry because he can't see what God sees. Jonah is angry. He can't see what God sees. Number two, Jonah is angry because he has a distorted view of God. And thirdly, Jonah is angry because he's living for things that he's losing. And as the Spirit then exposes any anger, any frustration, any disappointment that is in us, my prayer is that we would confess that to the Lord, that we'd be freed from that this morning, so that we would no longer have anger lodged in our hearts, but instead joy. And that's God's desire for us this morning. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who has made yourself known to us. You have revealed yourself to us, Lord, through your creation and through your word. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would give light to this passage of Scripture, that you would help us to really hear it and receive it that you would expose in us any underlying anger, frustration, or disappointment we might have with with you, O Lord, and that we would confess that and turn from it, that you would take our anger, and that you would implant your deep and lasting joy into our hearts. We ask for joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah 4. Verse 1, you remember, repentance just taken place. God has relented. Here we expect to see some rejoicing. 
right? We, we expect to see some of Jonah's joy, 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 joy that's down in his heart. Where? Yeah, down in his heart, right, okay. I mean, how many prophets had spoken God's word to people and people did not, did not listen or they killed them? How many preachers have preached and no response was seen, no immediate fruit came from it, and yet here Jonah preaches, and through a miraculous and gracious work of God, the people respond, but Jonah does not rejoice. We do not see joy overflow from his heart. No, look at how he reacts. Verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. No joy, no gratitude. He reacts with anger. The word angry here means to burn. He was inflamed. He's been simmering for a while. He's been disappointed for a while. He's been frustrated for a while. But now he's at his boiling point and he's angry with God. I mean, have you had those times, right? Maybe it's been a long week of just frustration and disappointment, frustration and disappointment, and then something happens that just sets you off. Jonah is angry with God about this. Verse 1 says, It displeased Jonah exceedingly. Most literally, it means that it seemed to Jonah like this was a great evil that God has done. Jonah sees this as something evil that God has done. Jonah doesn't see how this could be good of God. Jonah sees this as evil. He can't see how the justice of God and the love and grace of God aren't contradictions to each other here. And so he's angry because he can't see what God sees. He can't see what God sees. Well, what is Jonah not seeing that God sees? First, He's blind to just how gracious and merciful God has been to him. I mean, he wasn't angry back in chapter 2 when the whale, when God used the, the great fish to swallow him up, right? I mean, he responded then with this psalm of thanksgiving, this prayer of thanksgiving. He was excited about that. He's not angry when God is merciful to him. Why? Because he doesn't yet see just how sinful he is and just how holy God is and just how much grace and mercy he himself had received. Jonah's not seeing what God sees here. Second thing he's blind to is how God sees his enemies, the Ninevites. Even though, yes, God is aware and God has seen the great wickedness as the, of the Ninevite people, he also sees them as his creatures. God created them. God formed them. God made them. And the psalmist in Psalm 145, verse 9, says, The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Jonah would not like that verse. We sometimes don't like that verse. The Ninevites and even those human beings we would consider to be our enemies and a threat to us, are they not God's creatures as well? 
made in his image, knitted together by God. Jonah's not seeing what God sees. He's blind to how God sees his creation. Third thing he's blind to is how God is going to work in the future. Little does Jonah know that while God, yes, is going to in the future use the Assyrians to come carry out discipline on Israel. That is going to happen, right? Which discipline, while it never seems pleasant in the moment, it is for their good. But little does Jonah know that later then, that yes, okay, God is going to be gracious and merciful with this generation of Ninevites, but just go read the prophet Nahum and who comes after Jonah, and we see that God says, woe to Nineveh. That a generation or two after this, God's going to raise up the Babylonians to punish the wickedness of the Ninevites in their future. And so Jonah is angry now because he can't see the future justice of God being carried out. So he's angry now. He's angry now because he can't see what God sees. He can't see how merciful God has been to him. He can't see how God views all of his creation, and he can't see how God is going to work his future justice out. And don't these things cause us to react with some anger and frustration and disappointment as well? You see, we are tempted to become angry with God when things don't go according to our plans because we don't see what God sees. And I've I've shared this illustration before uh, about what my mom used to say growing up when the car would break down. Uh, It's kind of a a simple... uh, uh, illustration of just something going the way we didn't plan it to go, right? No one plans for their car to break down, right? It's an added cost. It's a, it's a, uh, it's, you have to change around your schedule. You have to figure out who's going to go get who and, and function with just one car. And I remember my mom used to always say when a car broke down and knew that we were going to have to pay a decent amount of money to get it fixed, she used to say, the Lord must know the mechanic needs the money more than we do. And that's, honestly, the Lord brings that to mind in lots of different situations, not only with the mechanic. But you see, that's just starting to kind of scratch the surface of what it looks like to not react with anger, frustration, and disappointment, but instead with gratitude and joy in being a part of God's plans and being a part of what God is calling us to. You see, we are tempted to respond with anger because we can't see what God sees. We can't see that, yeah, maybe the mechanic really did need the money. (laughs) But things start to come into focus for us a little bit more when we look to Christ and his cross. For it is Christ and the cross that open our eyes to see our sinfulness and God's holiness, and just how merciful and gracious God has been to us starts to come into a little bit more view there. We can start to see it when we look to Christ and the cross. It is Christ and his cross that opens up our eyes to see how God views his enemies, that he comes and lays down his life for his enemies, that he asks the Father to forgive his enemies as they're crucifying him. 
And it is Christ and his cross that helps us to see how God is dealing with sin. How every sin will be paid for. And it will either be paid for on the cross or it will be paid for at the return of Christ. We start to see his justice and his mercy and his grace all starting to come into view when we look at Christ and his cross. And so while we still can't exactly see how God will work all these things out in the future, in Christ we know that all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so church, I know it's frustrating. I know it's frustrating to not always be able to see what God sees. But isn't it so sweet to be able to trust in Jesus like we just sang? And in fact, let's even go a step further. Isn't it actually God's persistent grace to us that he doesn't allow us to see all that he sees? I don't think we could handle that. I don't want to see all that God sees. It's actually his grace. So I know it's frustrating, but oh, would we see it as God's grace to not see all that he sees, and may we be grateful and joyful that we don't see all that he sees. But certainly Christ and his cross starts bringing all we need to see into focus. And so when we are tempted to react in anger, let's remember Christ and his cross, and with grateful joy, let's remember his mercy and grace towards us. Let's remember how God sees his creation, including you and me, who he made. I mean, sometimes I'm frustrated with God and how he made me. The the key emphasis in that phrase is that he made me. He made us with all of our quirks and personalities and uniqueness and weaknesses and strengths. Remember how God sees his creation. And remember how God will, in his goodness and wisdom, work all this out for our good. So Jonah, he's not seeing what God sees here, and he's reacting with anger. He doesn't respond with a prayer of thanksgiving like we saw back in chapter 2, right? There's no joy, there's no gratitude here. He responds with an angry prayer. Which, listen, it is, it's never okay to be angry with God, all right? Because righteous anger is anger directed at evil, and God is not evil. And so it's never okay to be angry with God. If you are angry with God, it's most likely because you either think he's evil, you think he's weak, you think he's mean, or you think he's foolish. And so it's always wrong to be angry with God because God is none of those things. God is good. God is strong. God is kind. God is wise. But listen, if you are angry with God, at least be honest about it (laughs) and go to him in prayer. We, we can confess that, that yes, we, there are at times we are angry and frustrated with God. But, so let's be honest about it. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's go to him in prayer because not only will God expose the temperature of our hearts through how we react, but he will also expose the temperature of our hearts through prayer. 
And so look what gets exposed in Jonah's heart when he prays in verse 2. Jonah 4, verse 2, it says, And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah 4, verse 2, here, this is the big reveal. And we jumped ahead to this when we were talking about when Jonah first ran away from God because we could have speculated as to why he ran, like maybe he was scared or didn't want to go, things like that. But no, here in his angry prayer, he reveals his heart as to why he ran. And he quotes a passage from Exodus 34 that was ingrained in the heart and mind of every Israelite. It's when God comes down in a cloud with Moses And in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. Did you notice that Jonah doesn't quote the whole verse? Just the part he's struggling with. And he creates this simplistic, distorted view of God... And he accuses God of being a God who just loves and forgives everyone. Because he can't see, like we said earlier, how God could forgive both, and could, could be a God who forgives iniquity and sin, and yet also be a God who by no means will clear the guilty. Like, how can he be both of those things? He can't see it. And we can cut him a little bit of slack, because that really was a mystery that comes into focus with Christ and his cross. But Jonah here is angry because he's got this distorted view of God. Well, how do you get a distorted view of God? One of the ways we learn from Jonah right here. You see, Jonah is praying, which is the right thing to do, but he's doing it with the wrong heart. It's an angry heart. Jonah is quoting scripture, which many times is the right thing to do. He's obviously been reading his Bible. He knows the word. But he's using the word, he's using the word with a heart that is trying to justify his disobedience and hatred of the Ninevites. And so church, we got to see this. We got to see that doing the right thing with the wrong heart leads to a distorted view of God. Doing the right thing with the wrong heart leads to a distorted view of God. As we are raising our four boys, trying to teach them obedience and things like this, uh, we're trying to instill in them that simply, like, like just simply doing the right thing is not full obedience. 
that just behaving externally is not what God calls them to, and therefore not just we should call them to. Full obedience is, is more than just external behavioral modification. And I'm not sure where we got this phrase from, probably from one of you or from my sister or something, but we tell our boys that they need to obey right away with a happy heart. They need to, that's what full obedience in the Walker home looks like, obeying right away with a happy heart. And they do this many times. I don't always, but they do. But one of the biblical reasons that we say that and try to communicate a phrase like happy heart to our three-year-old Joel is that Proverbs 4.23 says to keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. We want our boys to learn how to obey with joy in their hearts. We want them to delight in obedience. Now, we can coerce external compliance out of them as long as we are bigger than them. But you've got to see that their heart is much more important. All their future decisions and thoughts and words and actions and all their life is going to flow out of their heart. And so if we allowed them to do the right things all the while being angry and sulking and grumbling and pouting against us. That would not be good for them. Because what happens when you do the right thing with the wrong heart? You start to get a distorted view of, of the person instructing you that, in this, right? So if they're going around pouting, grumbling about doing what they're doing, they're starting to have a distorted view of mom and dad. Like we're just some mean, evil dictators who are oppressing them and getting some cheap labor out of them who are maybe not capable themselves of cleaning the kitchen. And so they get, they've got this distorted picture of us. But no, we want them to joyfully obey us so that they will joyfully obey the Lord. We want them to joyfully take responsibility for the family and the house so that one day with their own family they will do this because we know that will bring them more joy and, and, and life and goodness to their lives, right? We want them to take responsibility for the home so that they will be good church members one day taking responsibility for God's family. And if their hearts don't learn to delight in obedience before they move out, dangerous. And so be careful of doing the right thing with the wrong heart over a long period of time. It is dangerous. You are going to distort your view of God. Now that's not to say that we should just abandon doing the right thing, right? Like, well, if I can't do the right thing with the wrong heart, then I'm just, you know. the, the, the point is, let's, let's address the heart quickly. That's the thing that matters, all right? Jonah, listen, look what's happening here. Jonah is praying and quoting Scripture, which I think we would all agree in many situations is the right thing to do. But he's doing it with a heart that is trying to justify his own disobedience, which I think we would all agree is the wrong heart. I mean, don't miss the craziness of this. He's quoting Scripture to God in order to justify himself. 
All of his life, he's been doing the right thing with the wrong heart. And now he's got such a distorted view of God that he thinks he can quote God's own words back to him in order to justify his disobedience to God's word. And man, we can shake our head at Jonah and say, this guy, right? Unbelievable. But church, aren't we too tempted to do the right thing with the wrong heart all the time? How many times have we come to God's word in order to justify ourselves? I mean, most one of the big themes of scripture is that we can't justify ourselves, right? But, but, but how many times do we come to it and, man, just start to feel pretty, like we check it off the list, we did our quiet time, starting to feel pretty good, pretty righteous about ourselves. How many times do we come to God's word to to puff up our knowledge and our pride so that we can know uh, more than the person sitting next to us so, so that we can appear like we know the most in our city group? Like how many times do we come to the word and just become wiser and wiser in our own eyes? Church, please do not be content to do the right thing with the wrong heart. Practical application, how do, well, how do we come to the word? James, James shows us how to receive the word in James one twenty one. He says, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Is this typically how we approach the word? With meekness? Is this typically how you've seen church people approach the word? With, with meekness? With a gentle spirit? A humble heart? A heart that knows it cannot justify itself? Do we come to the word with a healthy fear of the Lord? I mean, how many times do we quote God's word with a wrong heart and it actually inflicts pain on others? Proverbs 26.9 says, Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of fools. Got a bunch of Bible knowledge, verses to quote. But if you're doing it from a wrong heart, it's inflicting pain on people, but in our folly, we don't even realize it. If you do the right things with the wrong heart long enough, you will have such a distorted view of God and yourself that you will think your actions are justifiable, but God's are not. And you get to that point, and you're like, how did I get here? My actions are justifiable, but God's are not? What happens next? You will then become angry, frustrated, bitter, but you will... Those are all justified because look what God had allowed to happen in your life. But the saddest thing about all that is that you will be becoming angry, frustrated, and bitter, all the while missing out on the joy of the Lord being your strength. Oh, you're missing out on the joy of the Lord. And you'll become like those who Jesus said in John 5, who searched the scriptures because you think that in them they have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Verse 42. 
but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Church, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. Some of you are angry and frustrated because you've been doing all the right things with the wrong heart, and you've got this distorted view of God like He's not doing what you think He should be doing. And so we must be vigilant in assessing our heart motivations as we go about the day. It would probably be wise of us to start everything we do throughout the day with some sort of prayer. Right? Like, God, help me, help me have a right heart as I, as I go into eating this meal. Right? As I, as I wake up and have this coffee. As I go about my day, go to work or go to school. Lord, help me have the right heart in this. Lord, help me have the right heart as I approach your word. As I go to city group, as I come to a church gathering, as I lay down at night to go to sleep, help me have the right heart that can just rest in you, Lord. Oh, may we go to him and ask for hearts that fear the Lord, that are humble and meek, hearts that love God and love others. What we then see happen is that Jonah's anger in verses 1 and 2 is now going to play itself out as despair. Which many psychologists say that anger turned inward typically leads to despair, right? Anger that is internalized long enough leads to someone who is despairing or who is depressed, who is discouraged. And so a couple more questions to you all this morning. Are you despairing this morning? Are you discouraged this morning? Jonah is at the point where he despairs of life itself. It it seems a bit extreme to us as someone who's just kind of jumping into Jonah's life for a couple of chapters, but it'll make more sense in a moment. But look at verse 3, all right? Jonah 4, verse 3 says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. I mean, that seems a bit extreme. Seems a bit dramatic, Jonah. But remember, we've just kind of parachuted into Jonah's life here. You see, Jonah is angry and despairing because he's, he's been living for things that he now feels like he is losing. For Jonah to be despairing of life itself, Like, not just being a little, like, despairing of life itself. This means that something other than God has taken the top place in his heart as his reason to live. I mean, God has been so gracious to Jonah. He's called him, used him as a prophet. He's rescued him when he ran. He's worked powerfully through his preaching, and yet Jonah now wants to die. What is that? What this reveals is that some sort of idolatry has been taking place in his heart. Something other than God has been his main reason to live, and so Jonah now finds himself living for idols that he's losing. And he's angry, and he's despairing because of it. Like maybe his reason for living, I don't know, maybe his reason for living was his his reputation back in Israel and his social status. And now, like, what are all his friends and powerful political people going to think now that he's just been part of this revival in Nineveh? 
man, his reputation might really be hurt after this. Maybe his main reason for living was to see the success of his nation over all the other nations, and now this enemy has been spared by God and and is going to be a threat and a danger to his nation. You see, if something other than God has taken the top reason uh, for living, then you are living for something that you can lose. And if you are primarily living for something that you can lose, your life will be marked by anger, frustration, and disappointment, but it'll also be marked by anxiety or depression or both. Because you'll be either anxious about losing the things you're living for, or you'll be depressed because you've lost them. If you're primarily living for certain relationships, like that's your main reason for living, then, then you'll be anxious about losing them and you'll despair if you've lost them. If you're primarily living for, for comfort, then you'll be anxious about losing your comforts or losing anything that could threaten your comforts or you'll despair when you've lost them. And so let me ask you some questions to maybe help diagnose what things could be taking God's place in your life as your main reason to live. First question, what are you angry, frustrated, or disappointed about not having? Think about that. What are you angry, frustrated, or disappointed about not having? Maybe it's even a frustration with how God has made you and wired you. Your strengths, your weaknesses, your physical attributes. Maybe it's a certain job or salary or position of influence or control or power. What, what is it? What are you angry and frustrated about not having? Second question. What are you anxious about losing? What are the things that if you lost, you would be able to quote Jonah here and say, Lord, take my life. It's better for me to die than to live. Third question. What have you lost recently that you are despairing about? And don't get me wrong. There's, there's a time to mourn, time to grieve. But what have you lost recently that you are now despairing and maybe even despairing of life itself about? Could these things be idols in our lives? Things that have taken God's place in our hearts as the main reason to live. Church, listen, God is so gracious to us just as he was to Jonah, and he will do whatever is necessary to topple over our idols that are in our hearts. Because he knows that living for idols only leads to anger, anxiety, and despair, but living for God leads to joy. And I love the the picture of this that we see in 1 Samuel 5. We won't turn there for the sake of time, but it's, it's when the Ark of the Covenant is captured by the Philistines, and they bring it into the house of Dagon, their little idol, uh, demonic god they worship, and they come in in the morning to find the idol just face down in submission to the presence of God. And so they take the idol and they're like, oh, you know, maybe the, you know, maybe the wind knocked it over, maybe, you know, something, something, I don't know how he fell, but let's put him back up. They put him back up. The next morning, 
down again with his head and hands chopped off. (laughs) Church, idols will not stand in the presence of God. And you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we must not be a people who primarily live for things that we can lose. Church, keep yourselves from idols. What are you angry about? What are you anxious about? What are you despairing about? What is God exposing in you as your primary reason for living? And church, We can live joyful and grateful lives. We can. We can live joyful and grateful lives because we were meant to live primarily for a king and a kingdom that we cannot lose. God then responds with a question to Jonah. It's how he'll respond next week as we close out the book of Jonah. You see, not only will how we react to things reveal our hearts, not only will prayer reveal our hearts, but some good questions reveal our hearts as well. And I pray that you have some good friends that will ask you some good questions. Jonah 4, verse 4, And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Are you right to be angry, Jonah? Does it do any good for you to be angry, Jonah? And so I will turn the question to you this morning. Brothers and sisters, are you right to be angry? Are you right to be frustrated or disappointed? Are you right to be anxious? Are you right to be despairing? Or is it that you just can't see what God sees? Is it that you're doing all the right things with the wrong heart? Has something replaced God in your life as your main reason for living? You see, like Jonah, we react in anger when things don't go according to our plans. But what if instead of responding in anger, we responded in joy and gratitude that things are always going according to God's plans? And so my prayer for us this morning is that we would confess and turn from our sinful anger. That yes, there will be times where we are confused by how God is working. There will at times be times of pain and sorrow and mourning and grieving. But we need not become angry, anxious, or despair over these things. For we know, as Psalm 30, as we read in the call to worship, says that in Christ God will, He will turn our mourning into dancing. He will clothe us with gladness, that we would sing of His praise and not be silent, and give thanks to Him forever. So may we do that this morning. Let's pray.